Good morning, Lake City. Weren't those kids cute? You have the cutest kids up here every year. I just love uh, this Sunday, and that's just a foretaste of tonight. Be sure to come back tonight to uh, see them in all their glory. So, the words, I'm pregnant, never fail to attract attention. As a husband and as a father, I've heard them spoken numerous times. Three times by my wife, another four times by our kids as grandchildren have been added to the family. The times we heard those words were all happy times. Every birth, indeed every pregnancy, involves a degree of wonder. But the last time we heard that announcement of a grandchild being on the way was perhaps the most surprising of all. And I share this uh, with permission, all right? It caused me to, to have a little more wonder at the story we're reading today in the Gospel of Luke. You see, our son and his wife had given up on having their own children, and that's why their first three children were snowflake babies. If you're not familiar with that term, that's where a couple adopts an embryo from another couple. The doctor implants it in the womb of the adoptive mother. She carries it to full term and then has a normal birth. We were accustomed to that three times over. So to hear the news that our daughter-in-law was pregnant without an embryo adoption, should I say, was a bit of a surprise, and not just to us, but to them. I'm sure many of you have some stories you could tell as well. Hopefully this is sort of bringing some of those back as well. Because indeed, every pregnancy, every birth of a child is a miracle. And my message this morning is about the most incredible, the most important pregnancy in history. I'm inviting you to travel with me to a drab, uninviting town called Nazareth and to review how God is able to bring life into the most barren of settings and to breathe hope into the most unpromising situations. But the story that we're about to read is too well known, honestly. It's been heard so many times that the seeds of wonder tend to fall on hard or at least unprepared soil. So hopefully today the Lord will meet us afresh here on this all too familiar ground. Come with me to the hills of Galilee. It's not a long climb. And I think that from there your view of tomorrow may change just a bit. You see what the Almighty did there in the physical, biological realm, supernaturally begetting life, promise, and hope. He's fully able and ready to do in virtually any realm even today. Please take your Bible and open it to Luke 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll begin at verse 26, and as you're finding your way, I want to remind you of the context. The author of what we're reading today is Luke, who was a medical doctor. Who better to ask questions of Mary, to interview her, so to speak, and to describe this amazing birth? Luke was also a frequent companion of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And Luke begins his gospel by saying he did a thorough investigation and is writing up an orderly account for a man named Theophilus. He implies in the opening verses of chapter 1 he wasn't an eyewitness to these things, but that he conferred with eyewitnesses to write this all down for us. So all that we read about Mary today, we need to understand that Luke very possibly learned directly from her. When Luke interviewed her, she was not the young mother Mary, 
but probably around 70 years old or so. I picture Luke sitting down with Mary for a few hours to hear her story, to ask her questions, and then checking with her supporting witnesses. With that in view, let's read now about the wonder of Mary's betrothal, the wonder of her betrothal. By the way, grab your notes from your bulletin or on your app if you haven't already. Webster defines betrothal as a mutual promise or a contract for a future marriage. With that in mind, let's pick it up at verse 36. Excuse me, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So what is it that we know about Mary from the Gospels? Let me give you a brief list of things. First, her father's name was Eli, and he was a descendant of King David. Second, she had a sister named Salome. Third, she had a relative named Elizabeth, who would be the mother of John the Baptist. Fourth, she was a young girl at this time. Fifth, she was poor. Sixth, she was a devout follower or believer in God. And finally, she was preparing for her wedding. That last one is a key to the story that we're going to hear. Mary was a teenager preparing for marriage. So culturally, we know that in that day, most girls married around 14 to 16 years of age. So if we said at this point that Mary was maybe 15 or 16, we'd likely be very close. Then notice that word betrothed in verse 27. That means that Mary was legally pledged to be married. See, getting married was much different, a quite different process in the culture of that day. Unlike our Western culture, there were three stages to a Jewish wedding. First, engagement. That was where a formal agreement was made between the two fathers. Second was the betrothal or the ceremony where the promises were made. And third was the marriage. Approximately one year later, when the bridegroom would come for his bride at an unexpected time. When a couple couple was betrothed, they were under an obligation for sexual purity. Also, a divorce was required in order to break a betrothal. It was a very serious thing. And following the custom of that day, Mary would live with her parents, and Joseph with his, during betrothal. He'd use that approximately one year time to build a home, or more likely a room on his parents' home, for the newlyweds to live in after marriage. When it was time for the wedding, the groom would make a surprise trip to get his bride, return to the family home in a procession, and have this big wedding feast. At that time, the newlyweds would begin living together, formerly as husband and wife. Everything we are reading here today happens against that backdrop. Mary was likely about 15 years old, living with her parents, waiting for the day of her wedding. And like engaged girls everywhere, my guess is she could hardly think of anything else. What would marriage be like? What kind of husband would Joseph be to her? Would he be thoughtful? Would he remember to put the seat down? (laughs) Very real, okay? What would the wedding feast be like? The food, the guests, the decorations, the playlist. And what would she wear for the big day? 
Let's back up now and talk about verse 26, which begins with the words, in the sixth month. The sixth month of what? As you know, that refers to Elizabeth's pregnancy, because that's what Luke has been describing in the section right before what we're reading today. And what we're reading about here takes place in the city, it says, of Nazareth. So here's a map that shows you uh, the upper half of Israel. And the upper half includes the Sea of Galilee right here. And straight west over here is Bethlehem. About 70 miles to the south would be Jerusalem. Today, Nazareth is the largest city in the northern part of Israel. Here's a picture. This is uh, the city of Nazareth today from the south. Here's another photo of Nazareth. This is farther away with sheep there grazing, obviously. And then this last photo is one of what's called Mary's Well, or St. Mary's Well, which some believe is the place where the spring was that Mary met the angel. Archaeological evidence shows that Nazareth may have had a population of, say, two to 400 people at the time that we're reading here in Luke's Gospel. So quite a small village. Something of a backwater town, actually. Over the years, Jackie and I have been to Nazareth three or four times on our tours, and my very favorite place to visit there is called Nazareth Village. It's this wonderful open-air recreation of the village as it would have been in biblical times with guides in biblical costumes who reenact the life of it during the time of Christ. So just for fun, I want to show you a 45-second little uh, promo video of Nazareth Village to let you sort of picture that that day, what it might have been like. Let's see that now. Over 2,000 years ago, Nathaniel asked, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And the Apostle Philip answered, Come and see. We welcome you to come and discover the first century life on the authentic site. The first century Nazareth village is a living history village located in the heart of old Nazareth, Israel. Experience Jesus' stories in a fresh, dynamic way. Walk where Jesus walked. Share a biblical meal served by the villagers. little picture of what that day may have been like. All right, so chronologically, the Gospels are the first mention of Nazareth in all the Bible. It's perhaps remarkable for how unremarkable it is in nature. It's not mentioned at all in the New Old Testament. And in fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived near the time of Christ, mentions 45 towns in Galilee, but doesn't mention Nazareth at all. And the angel Gabriel showed up where? Nazareth. This was totally unexpected. Remember what Nathaniel said and was just referred to in the, in the video. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And of course the assumption was no, of course not. Oh, except for the Son of God. Because that's his hometown. Jesus would forever be identified with this place. Being repeatedly called Jesus of Nazareth. Tradition says that Mary saw the angel at the spring in Nazareth. That's one of the places you can visit when you go there. And uh, that's why in many films depicting this day and this scene, you see Mary with a, either carrying a jug or at the uh, spring there meeting the angel. 
It's also a reminder to us that she was a peasant girl, and that she grew up working hard for her family. And then Luke refers here to the angel Gabriel. Gabriel means mighty one of God. He's one of two angels in the Bible that we know by his name. He would probably easily win the award for the most admired angel in the Bible because he's always bringing important news, usually good news. For example, in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel meets with Zechariah, the priest, in the Holy of Holies, and he tells him, your prayers have been answered, your wife is going to have a son, and not just any son, but he will be the forerunner of the Messiah. Or go back 500 years earlier, Gabriel uh, appeared to the prophet Daniel and gave him the explanation about his vision. And he received that explanation about the end times and all those future world-shaking events. That was Gabriel. So no doubt, Gabriel will be quite an awesome sight for all of us to behold when we meet him in heaven. Let's read now about the message he had for Mary. The wonder of Gabriel's announcement. And at this point, Mary and Gabriel are about to have a conversation. Let's read the first exchange beginning at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary quite simply didn't know what to make of Gabriel's announcement. And the fact that she was greatly troubled reveals her humility. She was surprised to hear this extravagant thing said about her. How do you respond to something like that? But that's not the half of it, because almost without a pause, Gabriel proceeds to tell her even more. He tells her that she's going to have a baby, and not just any baby. He will be the Son of God. Listen again to these words. Even though you've heard them time and time again, try to put in your picture in your mind, you're, you're 15 years old, you're thinking about your upcoming wedding, and you don't have any idea what this angel is about to say to you. Let's pick it up at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's look at several of those uh, key phrases in what the angel said. First, he will be great. No one has influenced history more than the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Charles Spurgeon put it like this. Is it not proven that he is great? Conquerors are great, and he is the greatest of them. Deliverers are great, and he is the greatest of them. Liberators are great, and he is the greatest of them. Saviors are great, and he is the greatest of them. Friends, Jesus indeed is great. Next, he will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus would be the son of Mary indeed, but not only her son, he is also the son of God. And third, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll be the Messiah prophesied to David, who has the rightful authority to rule over Israel, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, 
and of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, Mary, your son will be the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And again, what do you say to that? Notice she doesn't ask what it means. I believe that she was a girl who knew the Old Testament well. She didn't have to ask what it meant, and she didn't ask why her. None of those ordinary concerns seem to affect her in the least. Listen to the wonder of Mary's question. It seems as though she has but one question, sort of a technical matter that needs to be cleared up. Basically the same question Zechariah asked Gabriel, but while his question was asked in skeptical unbelief, her question was asked in wonder-filled faith. Here it is in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Perfectly normal question, right? Mary is engaged but not formally married yet. She hasn't had sexual relations with a man. How then will she get pregnant and have a son? It's worth noting Mary doesn't doubt the angel's words. She believed what Gabriel said. Her only question seems to be how. In essence, all right, I'm willing, but please help me understand how this is possible. Well, there remains one final word from Gabriel, and it's the only explanation of the virgin birth in Scripture. And it's the wonder of Gabriel's answer. That begins at verse 35, the wonder of Gabriel's answer. And it begins with these words. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The key point in his explanation is that what is about to happen to her will be the direct intervention of God. The Holy Spirit will be the agent of the virgin birth. Overshadowing will be the means of the virgin birth. And the Son of God will be the result of the virgin birth. Now we'd love to understand that a whole lot better, but that's all we're told. And the bottom line is this, the virgin birth produced the Holy One of God. William Hendrickson, the commentator, adds this helpful note, and I quote, Does this mean that Gabriel has now made everything perfectly clear to Mary? <laughs> of course not. As anyone who has ever taken a course in human embryology knows, even ordinary conception within the womb is veiled in mystery. Therefore, this miraculous conception surpasses human comprehension all the more. So neither God nor Gabriel demand that Mary understand everything. What is required is only this, that she believes and that she is willing to submit. And then since Mary likely still has questions about all of this, Gabriel calls her attention to the case of Elizabeth. That's verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now these two pregnancies are not the same at all. Mary is a teenager and a virgin. Elizabeth was perhaps 70 years old. Elizabeth's conception came the natural way, while Mary's came via the Holy Spirit. But that's not the point. Okay? The point is that both are examples of impossible pregnancies made possible because God can do anything. 
Mary, just look at your relative Elizabeth. She's expecting her first child, even though she's too old. And if God can do that for her, don't you think he can do this for you? And that brings us to verse 37. The angel continues, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's one of my favorite overlooked Christmas verses. God is able to do anything he wants because nothing is impossible for him. You know, in the history of the church, Mary has often been portrayed as kind of this mysterious, otherworldly figure. In fact, if you look at paintings of Mary, they make her look almost unreal, complete with halo, okay? And to me, that's sort of a shame because Luke makes it very clear that Mary was very real, with very real questions and a very real faith in God. She's admirable for that, of course, but she was not sinless, and she is not to be worshipped. Now, nowhere is Mary's faith seen more clearly than in her response to all of this. That's verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And here we see the wonder of Mary's faith. Remember you're 15, 16 years old, something like that. Your mom asks you to go down to the spring and fetch some water, and you run into this man you've never seen before. And he tells you that you're going to get pregnant and have a son, that, you, that he will be the son of God. And when you ask how in the world can this happen, he says, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will take care of that. What do you say to that, right? Mary said yes. Yes to God. Yes to the impossible. Yes to being misunderstood and falsely accused. Mary said yes to the plan of God in her life. Many times we wonder what the will of God is for our lives. And I'd simply suggest to you that our part in that is to say, Lord, I'm willing to obey you whatever you show me. Even if I don't completely understand what it is, just tell me what you want me to do, and I'm ready to go. I'm willing. In other words, first we need to commit ourselves to him, and then he will reveal his will for us and work it out. That's what Mary did. She didn't fully understand what the angel was telling her, but she obeyed just the same. She took a step of faith. And beloved, that is the attitude that God looks for in his servants. Childlike faith. And simple obedience. Mary said yes. And with that response, Jesus came into the world. So let's talk now about some timeless lessons for today. Four timeless lessons. The first is this. No matter who you are, the Lord can use you. No matter who you are, the Lord can use you. We have this tendency, I think, to look at age, to look at experience, to consider background and education. We want someone with skills and with abilities and talents, you know, whether it's hiring for a job or filling a volunteer position or whatever it is. But God doesn't necessarily see things like we do. We have this tendency to look on the outside. The Bible says God looks at the heart. If your heart is right with him, he can use you. Luke's portrait of Mary is that she was a very ordinary girl with some 
liabilities. First, she was young. I mean, we look at her and we think, man, she's even too young for God to use in such an important role. But God didn't think so. Second, she was poor. In Luke 2, if we were to go on and read the next chapter, it says that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. And since they couldn't afford the regular offering, they brought two doves, the offering allowed by law for a couple living in poverty. Third, she was from Nazareth. She was from the wrong side of the track, so to speak, a town with a bad reputation. That didn't hold God back either. She was young, she was poor, she was from Nazareth. All the weaknesses we might consider would make her unusable by God. But God chose Mary for one of the most important missions he ever asked anyone to do for him. And through God's choice of Mary, he teaches us, no matter who you are, God can use you. Lesson number two. No matter what problems you face, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Remember in verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid. And once, he, once she got over the fear of seeing this angel, imagine the other fears that she might have experienced as a result of all this. Number one was the possibility of divorce. Mary realized that Joseph, if he chose to, could divorce her for being pregnant. Remember, Joseph hadn't dreamed the dream yet. At this point, Mary didn't know how he was going to respond to this news. But she knows God has chosen her and that he's promised to be with her. Fear number two is possible rejection by her family. What would her parents think? What would her siblings think? Would they believe her story? Would they believe that an angel appeared to her? Would they stand by her during those nine months of pregnancy? She has no idea how her family will respond, but she trusts God anyway. Third number three was certain rejection by the community. Imagine the gossip that must have circulated around Nazareth as her baby bump began to show. It's likely that her friends and the synagogue in Nazareth shunned her. But Mary believed that God was with her, even if her friends and neighbors rejected her. And fear number four was possible death by stoning. You see, according to the law of Moses, that was the penalty for becoming pregnant during betrothal. Even though by New Testament times it was rare, that was still a possibility. But Mary clung to the words of the angel in verse 28. The Lord is with you. Two lessons from Mary. No matter who you are, God can use you. No matter what problems you face, the Lord is with you. And third, no matter what you need, the Lord can do it. He can do it. See, Mary trusted the Lord to do what he promised her, even though it seemed impossible. Her response was, yes, Lord, I am willing to follow you. How in the world did Mary have such strong faith? Well, if we were to read the rest of Luke chapter 1, we would see very quickly that Mary was very familiar with Old Testament scripture. Most likely her parents were responsible for that. Her faith in God was strong because she knew the word of God. 
And no matter what you and I need, beloved, we need to be in God's word and we need to believe that he can keep his promises to us. He can do it. I read a great illustration of that recently that I'm going to share with you. It's from the November edition of the SIM magazine. And SIM is the missionary organization we partner with to reach the Tamajic or help reach Tamajic in Niger. But this story is from the country of Liberia. How dare you, Hassan snarled, leave me for a week to go to some Christian thing. Who will cook my food? Who will clean for me? And with that, the blows came. Monday morning before dawn, Sonia quietly slipped away for the church conference. One thing she would never do, forsake the God who redeemed her, no matter how much abuse she'd have to endure. From the front porch, Hassan yelled, Good riddance! See this? It is that woman's only key to my house, and she will never come in again. Next door neighbors watched him as he locked the door and threw the key into the river, meandering by their home. Then he stormed down the road to spend the week with his mistress. Surrounded by her brothers and sisters in Christ at the conference, Sonia stood to vulnerably share a prayer request. Hassan is so cruel to me, but I want to honor my husband. Please pray that God will show me how to do this. By Friday, Sonia knew what she had to do. She stopped by the market on the way home, wanting to have a hearty meal ready for Hassan when he returned home from his Friday prayer meeting at the mosque. Undeterred, when she found the house locked up tight, Sonia began cleaning the fish outside. Cutting it open, she discovered something hard in its belly. It was a key. She called to her neighbor, this looks really familiar. Her neighbor's eyes widened as Sonia tried the lock and found the key slid right in. Hassan was livid when he came home and found his wife inside. How did you get in here? He asked as he spat at her. She explained the bizarre story of the key inside the fish. And Hassan went silent. Sunday morning, he asked for the first time if he could join her at church. After the service, he pulled the pastor aside. I want to serve the God of the Christians, he said. He is the one who knows and has the power to do what no one else can. On that day in Liberia, Hassan accepted Jesus as his Savior. Beloved, no matter what you need, remember that the Lord has the power to do it. Absolutely. Lesson number four, finally. No matter who you are, you need a new birth. You need a new birth. We need to see beyond the birth of the baby Jesus to the reason for which he came into our world. He came to restore and reconcile us to God. There are some people today, many people actually, who think that they can be forgiven for their sin and get right with God by doing more good than bad. Or by being religious, by going to church, by doing religious things. Or that by simply being born into a Christian family that they're right with God. But Jesus said this. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus said that to one of the leading teachers among the Pharisees. In other words, a very religious person. You must be born again. You have to have a second birth. Friend, have you been born again? I'll talk to that in just a minute. We'll come back to that. But first, I want to consider with you some next steps, some application. Because God doesn't want us just to know that these things happened. He wants us to do something with that truth. So here's number one. I believe God wants me to have more faith in this situation, more faith in him to do this. And just fill in that blank. Perhaps as we spoke today about faith and about fear, you thought about a situation in your life where you need to trust God, where you need to ask him for the faith to step forward. If so, I'd encourage you to jot that down on your sermon notes. If you want us to pray with you about that specific thing, please write it on your communication card. We'd love to pray with you as well. Next step number two, I will explore God's word for promises that build my faith. So as you think about those fears, about those areas in your life where you need to have more faith in God, realize God's word speaks to those things. And remember that often we have to wait for God to do his work. God's timing is often not our timing. He does not follow our agendas or our time schedules. Sometimes, in fact, we even wonder, is God really going to follow through on that promise? Christmas reminds us that God has followed through on his promises. He sent Jesus as the promised Messiah of the world. Jesus came to the world to take our sin and to secure our future with God. And I want to encourage you to read the Bible, to see the promises to those who believe. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Next step three is I will trust God to use me to fill in that blank. Okay, no matter who you are, the Lord can use you as part of his kingdom plans. No matter what your age, the Lord has something for you to do for him in his kingdom. And I'd suggest he wants to use you in his kingdom. Yes, you might have some fears. You might think that you're nobody that God could use or do, to do something significant, but I want to disagree. And I think Mary would disagree with you too. God can use anyone who is willing to surrender their life to him. Would you say to him like Mary did, Father, I'm your servant. It's not my life, it's yours. Whatever you want, that's what I want too. Next step number four is I will say yes to God's invitation to be born again. I will say yes to the invitation, the gift that God has given me and what Jesus called being born again. And I close my message today by asking you that all-important question. Have you or have you not been born again? Have you received the new birth, the forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ that God offers? If not, I want to encourage you to make that decision before you leave here today. Put your faith in Christ and receive his forgiveness for sin. Would you pray with me, please? We're going to begin with a moment of silent prayer so you can just sort of process the things you've heard or maybe what God is calling you to do for him. Let's pray silently and then I'll close in just a minute.
Father God, I pray for all those hearing this message today that, like Mary, we would say to you, we would offer ourselves to you and say to you, yes, Lord, I'm willing. Use me, Lord, however you want. I'm your servant. Fill us and empower us to do your will, to fulfill your plans in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you give us. We thank you that you are with us. And then, Lord, I pray this invitation prayer for any that are here today that have not yet taken that first step of faith to receive Christ. Friend, if that's you and you want to receive Christ today, just pray along with me silently in your heart. Just say to God something like this, Father, I want your forgiveness. I don't understand it all, but I know I can't earn it. And so I receive it as a gift today by putting my faith in Christ and his death and resurrection for me. I invite Christ into my life and I turn from my sin and I trust Jesus to be my Savior today. Lord, we thank you for that amazing gift and we thank you for the way you used Mary as part of the process to bring your son into our world. Fill our hearts today with the same desire and willingness to be your servants today, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.